Lord in heaven, thanks for uh, just a chance to wake up early this morning, spend time with friends, consider the truth of your word, and um, Father, how we're, we are to appropriately respond to it. Lord, I, um, I thank you for your grace in our lives, and that um, we're assured through your word that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So Lord, we rejoice in that. Father, uh, may we be found faithful today um, as being the men you call us to be in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, John chapter 3 and 4. Man, what a great week of study, huh? And uh, my challenge this morning, gang, um, is not necessarily to walk you through chapters 3 and 4, teaching all that's there. We'd be here a long time, right? But my challenge, rather, is to set you up so that you can go in your groups and have a great discussion and share what it is that you've learned and the insights um, that you gained from your time uh, alone with God over this past week. But what I want to do is I I do want to point out a couple of different things, and that is that these two chapters are set up, if you notice, in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. That chapter ends by saying Jesus was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And it's here that um, is the segue from chapters 2 to 3 and 4. John makes this point at the end of chapter 2 only then to exemplify this truth that Jesus knew what was in men. And he contrasts what you see in chapter 3 with, the Nicod- with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, in chapter 4, the woman at the well, a Samaritan. And so um, there's much that can be made of this, and I, and I put up here just a couple of contrasts between the two and the two chapters. And you can even go on um, later on and see how Jesus uh, heals the nobleman's son and just what's happening there. And there's lots to see and compare and contrast there. But in just chapter 3, you see a man who's well-respected. You see a Jewish man, a Pharisee, a leader, a rabbi, versus chapter 4, Samaritan woman. The Pharisee had a position of influence in society, and she had no notable influence by position. But we see later on, because of her conversation with Christ, she had great influence in the people in her life. Nicodemus was respected by the Jewish community. She was despised by the Jewish community because she was a Samaritan and because of her uh, character. He is supposedly moral, at least on the outside. She allegedly is immoral. He initiates with Jesus. She responds to Jesus. And I could go on and show you, and it would be maybe worth some time uh, for you and your groups to discuss what are some things that are like and unlike about Nicodemus in three and the woman at the well at four. And how did Jesus respond to them? And in chapter 3, there's a lot of topics there to discuss what it means to be born again. The idea of water and spirit, light and darkness. Um, You could discuss just the humility of John. Uh, You know, there's some discussion um, as as to whether verses 16 through 21 are actually spoken by Jesus or are they spoken by John the evangelist who's writing this book. John um, is rich in theology. And perhaps Jesus didn't 
say these particular words in 16 through 21, but it's John the Evangelist who's explaining and giving insight and theology into the conversation that was just had, um, Jesus just had with Nicodemus. See, in Greek, we don't have quotation marks like we do in English. So, there, so there's some discussion as to whether or not, hey, are these the words of Jesus or are these the words of John? Explaining and giving theology and explanation as, as to the conversation that just happened. Same thing in verses 31 through 36. Is this something that John the Baptist is saying? Or is this John the Evangelist's commentary on what John the Baptist just shared? And his role that he must decrease in order that Christ must increase. But where I want to focus this morning and set you guys up is, is, is John chapter 4. One of my favorite passages and perhaps uh, a passage that uh, you turn to as well. And that's the woman at the well. Now I want to just ask you real quickly. Think for a second. When was it that you personally trusted in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior? Maybe it was when you were a child. Maybe it was not too long ago. But when was that? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what circumstances were surrounding you in your life that brought you to that point of recognition? More importantly, do you remember who it was that took the time to share with you the love of Christ? Remember who that person was? Now, for many of us, perhaps um, it was a series of conversations, and we don't have a point in time that we remember, and that's okay. But for other, others of us, we have a distinct memory of who it was who sat down with us and said, hey, let me, let me tell you what the Bible has to say about how you can have a relationship with the Lord. For me, it was a valet car parker, believe it or not, as odd as that sounds. As my parents were eating dinner inside and I was bored as a young child, and there was a lot going on in my life with fear and insecurity, and a valet car parker took the time in a short amount of time to get to know me as I was running around outside just hanging out waiting for my parents to finish up. And in that little window, he crossed the boundary, got to, into my world, and shared the love of Christ with me. I don't know his name. I remember what he looks like. I remember where I was. I remember what was going on in my life. Who was that for you? Well, there's much that we can learn from John chapter 4, but one thing I want to suggest to you is is that here, um, there is a great model for evangelism. What Jesus does um, and how he reaches out to this woman, I think sets up a great model for us and how we can make an impact on the lives of other people. The first thing you see in verses 1 through 6 is that Jesus was willing to cross several boundaries in order to reach out to her. You know, much has been made of the fact that Jews did not have any dealings with Samaritans, and the Samaritans were despised by the Jews, and there's a lot of history there and culture there. And Jesus, in verses 1 through 6, just makes the point that he left Judea um, to head to Galilee. But he, he chose... Um, not to pass through or pa- go around Samaria, but rather to pass through Samaria. And in our day, you know, in America, we don't have anything really quite like that. We're, we're um, so biased against a certain, you know, group, right, that we choose not to even travel through their town. Um, but we do have boundaries in our lives. 
We, we do have these, these borders, if you will, that sometimes we just avoid because we'd rather not pass through them. And Jesus was willing to cross through several boundaries, not just geographically, but boundaries based on um, class and prejudice in order to reach out to this woman at the well. Second thing you see in verses 7 through 14 is that he used her physical needs as a means to speak of her spiritual need for a savior. He took advantage of the opportunity of both he was thirsty and she comes to the well to gather, to, to gather water. And he just takes the opportunity there to not just speak of her physical thirst, but even a greater need, a real need, a deeper need. Her need for a savior in Christ. And the third thing you see there is, verses 15 through 26, is he saw through her smoke screen, if you will, in order to reveal that he was the Messiah. You remember what happens here? Jesus, he pries a little bit in her life. He speaks personally to her. He, he brings up the fact that, um, hey, you know, you've been married a few times. Let, let's talk about what's going on in your heart. And you remember what her first response is? It just feels like a total non-sequitur, right? All of a sudden, he's bringing up how um, what her past, and then she brings up this smoke screen, this theological smoke screen of tradition and where they're to worship and the differences between the Jews and, and the Samaritans. And he sees through all that. He identifies that smoke screen, sees through it, and then once again points her to who he is. And how she needs to respond to the love and the gift of God. So this just got me to thinking. And I want to throw these things out there to you. And the first one is this. is What boundaries, whether social, political, racial, economic, is Jesus asking you to cross so that others can come to know him? As I said, we don't have a geographical area that we just avoid to pass through and we've got to walk in there. But you know what? There might be somebody's office that you avoid. There might be a neighbor who has a reputation on your street that others just kind of go, hey man, you know, that guy's just kind of a strange duck. And as all others avoid him, you know, maybe God's prompting your heart to go knock on the door. Who is it at the office that man, just doesn't have the reputation that others would want to associate with, that the Lord would have you reach out to. I mean, this is a lesson game. I am teaching, trying to teach my kids in elementary school, even as of this week, about reaching out to one of the kids who's in the cafeteria who happens to find themselves sitting uh, alone more often. And just trying to even give my kids a mindset at a young age, even now, Something that's hard for us to do as adults just to go, hey, you know what? There are some people that are hard to relate to. There are some people who may have wronged you and that you don't want to reach out to because of the way they've treated you. But what would Christ have you do? And to try to coach my children to, to love those who may be hard to love. How are you doing at that? What boundaries are keeping you from reaching out to those around you? Secondly, how can you use people's physical needs in order to speak with them about their spiritual need for a Savior? You know, people um, will often approach you asking for something. It could be the guy on the street. It could be the guy who knocks on your door. It could be the guy who calls you. It could be a client. It could be 
um, somebody who's soliciting your business. Those who come to you and those who initiate with you, those who have physical needs, those who have wants, then how are you doing it? Take advantage of that opportunity and say, I mean, can, I, can I share with you what it is I believe? Or can I share with you a different perspective? You know, I, I learned this um, and watched this when I was uh, young, okay, when Wagner was leading high school ministry. And I just struck out to me, you know, those guys on the street just spending time with Todd. Um, and guys on the street would approach us. And, and I just remember you know, that first time he goes, you know what, I'm not going to offer you money, but if you're hungry, why don't we go to that McDonald's over there? And I'll buy you a meal. And then just using that opportunity to tell them about how they can have a relationship with Christ. And that just, I mean, that just stuck out to me. It just stuck out to me from a young age. Something simple, you know. But it's taking advantage of the opportunity that, hey, there's a physical need. There's a real need here. And it's something that we can all do. When I was in um, the hospital, I was struck by uh, an 11-year-old girl. 11-year-old girl, you all heard me talk about, when I was in a lot of pain and just only able to focus on my own little world, how she used her cancer, her diagnosis, to reach out to other kids at 11 years old and going door-to-door and just initiate relationships. Given the physical needs of those around her and how she gave little gifts, how she and her parents just talked about the love and the faithfulness of Christ. And it had a great impact on me. Thirdly, to what extent are you able to identify and challenge people's smoke screens for not believing in Jesus? You know, we have an apologetics team here, which is just a a team which helps us answer uh, questions that people throw out about what we believe and why we believe it. And we have a a little email, greatquestions at watermark.org, and People follow up, this team follows up with folks on Sunday morning. And, you know, we're often asked a lot of questions. And I'm all constantly reminding that team that, you know, people may ask questions about age of the earth or creation or homosexuality or the role of women in the church or what we believe about. And the list goes on and on and on. And I continually remind them, hey, gang, it's not about just answering that question, although there are good answers to that question. It's about pointing people to Christ. Now, I don't know if um, it's typical of your experience, but it certainly is of mine. As I begin to discuss with people who Jesus is and what he's done for them on the cross, I mean, inevitably, something will come up. Um, much like what this woman did here, where, well, don't Christians believe and fill in the blank? You know, aren't there contradictions in the Bible? Doesn't Genesis 1 contradict Genesis 2? What does the church believe about dinosaurs? Now, what about Noah? And these are all they're good questions. But can you, can you answer those questions? Can you, are, do you feel like you're prepared and equipped to answer those questions to then turn and point people to Christ? And that's my challenge to you. In John chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. They're white for harvest. And the opportunities out there are plentiful. And God wants to enlist you, just as he did his disciples here, to say, hey man, there are opportunities today 
for you to cross boundaries, for you to take advantage of opportunities in your relationships. Where there are physical needs and to speak of a, de- of a deeper need, how Christ can meet that. There are opportunities today for you to work through people's smoke screens and to point them to who Jesus is and how they can have a relationship with him. What I love about chapter 4 and how it ends is how this woman just simply chose to go and tell her story. And because she was faithful to tell her story about how Christ spoke and ministered and met her needs, she turned another group of people, a town, upside down. You know, it's not unlike what you saw at at the end of, of John 1, verse 46, where Philip says to Nathaniel, just real simply, come and see. Don't take my word for it. Come and see. So my challenge to you this morning is, is who are you going to tell? You know, is, there, is there anybody who, if they were in this room, and when I started this morning, I said, man, who was it that shared the love of Christ with you? Is there anybody that would write down your name? Who are you going to tell this week? Let's pray. Well, Lord in heaven, thanks for just the um, truth of your word, for the challenge of John chapters 3 and 4. I um, mean, specifically the way in which you ministered to and, and cared for the woman at the well and the lessons that we can learn from that. I pray, Father, that we would be bold in um, the way that we reach out to others. I pray, Father, that um, we wouldn't allow political or social um, realms, Lord, to, to serve as boundaries um, in our lives. But we would reach out to those, Lord, who um, are difficult to love or are different than us or live in a different part of our community, to share the love of Christ. And that, Father, we would take advantage of the everyday, ordinary opportunities around us um, to be effective witnesses, to be able to uh, be fully equipped, Lord, to deal with those smoke screens that are thrown our way, to answer good questions, but ultimately, Lord, to not get entangled in details that we lose sight of the fact that people need to hear about Jesus. May we be found as effective and bold ambassadors for your kingdom this morning, I pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen.